First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes what? Welcome to Then Comes What, a monthly show where we open up everything you wanted to know and some things you didn't about love, sex, marriage, children, manhood, womanhood, and more. Hey everybody, welcome to Then Comes What. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host, and we have a murderer's row of pastors here to talk to you today we've got pastor jacob mensel hey how you doing he's wearing a red sweater uh we got pastor tim Burgundy, bailey yeah, I would say. howdy he's wearing a we've decided are we allowed to say what it is on mike <laughs> oh you might as well a periwinkle shirt <laughs> i'm colorblind <laughs> <laughs> it's a very handsome shirt and we've got pastor max Carell. hello there he's got a green t-shirt and a white what would you say Button down. It's gray. A, a gray button down. And I have a green cardigan. And today is our Valentine's Day episode. And I'm very excited. What I thought we'd do today is talk about singleness. And let me start us out with a question for all of our listeners Am I called to singleness? Well, if you're always whining about being single and how the church doesn't have a place for singles and on and on and on and on. You're not called to singleness. <laughs> if you're married, you're not called to singleness. Okay. <laughs> Mary Lee and I had back years ago before you, you guys were at the church, we had a woman in the church who was getting her graduate degree in library science. And the pastor that I worked with at the time was explaining to me that our church talked too much about families and children. Mm-hmm. And that we weren't sensitive to the singles in the church. Well, at that time, being a much smaller church, that narrowed it down pretty considerably. He didn't have to use the name. He pretty well <laughs> knew who he was talking about. And you also knew, because she had been raised by a mother who was very bitter and nasty to her, that she was demonstrating that she resembled her mother. So um, I can remember us being concerned about her complaints that we would pray for the pregnant women and that I would have application of sermons to marriage and to family life and raising children and stuff. And it wasn't that I didn't speak about singles and roommates and all that stuff. So being conscientious, we decided we would have a singles retreat. Mm -hmm. And we got a man who, intervarsity uh, uh, worker in the D.C. area, Kevin Offner, who did graduate student and faculty ministry and had been single most of his life. He's since married, but I think he at that time was in his 40s and still single. And he came out and he was a good man. The reason I tell this story is that she refused to go to the singles retreat. And I want to tell that story because I think it is a very important story in how we must not respond to singles. And that is by giving them legitimacy when they claim to be the, the single sore thumb in the universe that doesn't fit in and hurts. And, and it's just that that is not something that should uh, have our priorities as pastors, as elders, as Titus II women in the church. We have to be very careful. And I would add this. When you have somebody like that who is quite older— and is constantly shoving 
himself or herself forward as the one victim, the, the, the perfect victim, the bitter perfect victim. If you do give attention to that person, one thing is absolutely certain is that you are not then going to minister to the real singles in the church who need your love and care and inclusion, because that person is a black hole of bitterness, of need, of resentment, and it might have a lot to do with why they're single. Is there, once you scrub past all the bitterness and those people, and I think we all know those people, is there legitimacy to the idea that the church somehow misses the mark on single people or doesn't take them into account? Or Well, singles would see that as a failure that has application to them uniquely. I would just say it's a failure of the church to have any community life, fellowship, love, pastoral care. And I think that people who are married and children and older people and widows, I think everybody suffers equally from the absence of real life and love in the church today. I can see why singles would feel uniquely harmed or failed by that, and I have sympathy for that. But whatever we do to address the needs and vulnerabilities of singles, or whatever singles do to address the vulnerability and needs of people trying to raise children in our culture today. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a mutual need of singles for families and families for singles. Whatever they do will address all of the vulnerabilities in the church and not simply the singles. If you watch people having life together, we are all vulnerable to the circumstances and the difficulties of our lives and to care for one another, to live together, to carry one another's burdens, to love one another, to have fellowship with one another. And if you have a small group and it's composed of people who are married and some single people as well, they know, they know what the circumstances of one another's lives are if they have any kind of intimacy and care. A single person in that group is going to be cared for by the others, knowing their vulnerabilities and knowing the difficulties of their lives. And the people with children, as Tim said, or families with a whole different set of vulnerabilities and difficulties are going to be looked at by the single person and they're going to be cared for. And if they really are preferring that person above themselves, if they really are bearing one another's burdens, if they're really loving each other. You know, if they're really weeping with those who weep and laughing with those who laugh, all of those things are carried mutually, regardless of that particular state. Of singleness. Of singleness, yeah. So why do I see article? I mean, I feel like I see an article every six months that says the church has failed to reach out to singles. The because the places where you find those articles are places that are committed to pandering to an audience that desperately wants to be pandered to and doesn't want to live with two feet on the ground and wants to feel sorry for themselves. I, <laughs> sorry yeah. to put it so bluntly, but honestly, it does look like it's like clockwork on schedule. We have to have the article once a month for... Okay, so let me, let me interrupt and say, how about if we give them a picture of a shepherd's view of the sheep? People don't get that very often. We care for our flock tenderly. We love singles older, younger children, and we spend tons of time. We just got out of a meeting where we spent hours discussing the vulnerabilities of very specific people and how we can help. Now, yeah. 
With that as a background, would you defend yourself against people who are on the other end saying, that's easy for him to say, he's married, he has children? In other words, can we give single people some idea of how other people would sound if they began to complain about the church not helping them in their weakness? Is that a good exercise? I have uh, a widow in my small group. I have a woman who's in her 70s who never married. A large part of our small group time is simply loving and making those women feel loved and seen and listened to. And touched. And touched. That's right. They all get big hugs Mm. as they come in and as they leave. You sit and you listen to them talk about their week, tell stories about for the 5,000th time, the time that her husband proposed or, mm-hmm. you know, the time they spent at the bowling alley and, or whatever else. Or What's remarkable about it is how much of your work there, of one's work there is simply human contact. That's it's right. It's just talking. It's just it's talking, acknowledging, it's, listening, it's, it's seeing, touching, observing, yeah. and touching. It's not about great words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be, but generally speaking, it's just like, I acknowledge your existence as another as a fellow human being, and I want to listen to you. Is it a work of joy to you in your group, or do you resent it? I I think it's very much a work of joy. I think, it, you know, there are times when somebody's feeling especially lonely and they want to hang out for eight or nine hours, mm-hmm. um, that it can be a little challenging mm-hmm. um, and draining, especially for my wife, who ends up over the course of that time bearing more of that than I do. Mm. But it's still a joy. And then you get a, you know, you get adopted. You know, those women love you and uh, attune themselves to caring for your family when they come over for small group mm. and love being around your kids. Um, so it is a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. Of Christians with each other where singleness and marriage and children all add, but none of them detract. In other words, this yeah. is who you are. Would you feel different if those women, the widow and the woman who never married, would you feel different if they were a glaring thumb of pain, calling attention to themselves and being bitter and saying the church doesn't reach out to them? How would it be to care for them if that was their attitude? It would simply be about minimizing the damage they do to everyone else in the group hmm. and not feeding their bitterness and not giving it much of the time of day, except when and ha- uh, when appropriate. And yet it's not that you don't see the vulnerability of these women in your group, right? Right. You do see the vulnerability. Absolutely. And it doesn't take them whining, does it? No. For you not. to love them, because we all try to cover the parts of the body, which are what? More valuable. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what the that Apostle what Paul says? says? Yeah. yeah. Now, I want you to do something else. Yeah. Would you please role play the kind of bitterness that your wife, Amanda, could have if she wanted to trump a single person saying that the church doesn't care for them? Now, I'm serious about this. Channel your wife as a bitter, married, young mother of many. Yeah. Well, okay. I am here. I have given myself to starting a family. I dropped out of school to start a family. Didn't finish my education. Didn't finish. I never got started on a career path. Got married young. Started having kids. Dealt with postpartum depression. I don't have any family around to help care for my kids. I'm doing this on my own. I 
church family's not here for me, coming over and babysitting and providing relief in the middle of the day. And here you are, you've got all the freedom in the world. She's speaking to singles. Yeah. You've got all the freedom in the world to do whatever you want. Finish your education, get a career, go take a nap. Take vacations. Take a vacation, read. Not change diapers. Not not be stuck changing diapers, dealing with potty training kids. Not having your body split open by pregnancy. Not having to deal with stretch marks. Not having to deal with anything like that. You get to do what you want when you want, and you're going to complain about that while I'm over here. And the most care the church gives me is they keep telling me that I should be pregnant and barefoot all the time. And happy about it. And happy. Super excited about it all. And that I should never lose my temper with my children. And if I do, I should feel terrible. And if I don't feel just super happy about the life I'm living. Content. Content is the word. Content. If I don't feel content content with the life I'm living, then- you know, I'm failing spiritually and I can't be real about anything because I just have okay, to be Nathan, happy Okay, Nathan, would you channel an elder of our church who is married and has a job? Well, everything's oriented towards the families, actually. We throw our energy into the youth, into youth culture, actually, into making sure that the youth groups are taken care of. Where are the meetings for me? Where is the place for me to connect with other men? Where is the place where... Pastor Bailey is actually talking about me. What he's actually always doing is preaching to the young married couples and uh, maybe occasionally to the singles. But actually, there's not a lot of purchase for old age. And people aren't really very interested in hearing my opinions. And I've got some wisdom. Nobody really seems to care. But I'm supposed to be there to help. I'm supposed to be there. My money's supposed to be there. And I'm supposed to serve everybody. I'm supposed to serve everybody. I'm not supposed to complain about it. I'm supposed to, I'm the sort of thing that is asked to be there when I need to be there. And then I'm discarded and forgotten about as soon as I become irrelevant to the energy and the young people and everything that's going on that's actually what everyone considers important. And I can take it from the community because it's a university community. It's the way university cities are, but I would hope for something better from the church. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm in my 40s and I'm the first person on the list that is called when the light bulb needs to be changed, when mm-hmm. the grass needs to be cut, when chairs need to be set up or torn down, when there needs to be somebody taking care of seven-year-olds in our Wednesday night programs. I actually helped build this church, and now young people are coming in, and they don't care what I think. They're, they just want to build their own thing. They, they're changing it all. Okay, now I'll channel an empty nest mother. Her kids are gone, and she just spends her life caring for children that aren't her own, sometimes grandchildren, but she's a doula. And if there is ever any problem spiritually with any woman of the church— She's the one that's supposed to go meet with the woman and bear the woman's burdens and calm her and reassure her and teach her and be sensitive to her and tactile to her. And then her husband gets done preaching and he says to her, how did I do, honey? And she's supposed to prop up her husband's, what would you say, pathetic weakness or (laughs) something, insecurities, yeah. And and who on earth has any concern about empty nest mothers, the pain of having their reason to exist gone from their home. In some cases recently, the I mean, she really is in many ways single again. Her reason to exist doesn't, you know. Now, okay, so why am I asking that we do this? Because this is what the church has become. It's become a bunch of balkanized victim groups 
who feed each other's victimhood if they happen to be in the same, you know, province of need and pain and, and resentment. And this absolutely destroys the church. This is the problem with the Judaizers. You know, it's a different issue, but it's the same issue, which is we don't consider others better than ourselves, and we don't care about other people. What we care is our sore thumb. You know, that's what we care about. And if that's how we're going to approach singleness in this discussion, we're not going to be any help to anybody. Well, let me ask you a question. If every group can make a claim that for its own victimhood, if we, you know, we all have our own monopoly on pain and suffering that is specific to us and how we should be the, the, the important ones, why, why does single awareness get such uh, press? Such a, why, is, why is that the group that they choose to write the articles about these days? Could be because people don't get married until they're 30. And so you have a, a whole lot of high energy people, high energy time of their lives who have not taken on certain responsibilities, not because it's been God's dispensation for them, but because they just don't want the responsibilities. Well, and you compound that with the reality that it doesn't matter how responsible or in touch you are when you do get married and when you do have children it gives you it, it has a way of uh, taking a hack at your entitlement mm -hmm. and maturing you and not everybody gets rid of their entitlement or their selfishness or matures but that's part of the the discipline that comes god's discipline and growing and maturing us so i mean i think that we can all look back on our lives if we are married and say you know we, i used to do this this joke that we all no, right? You're like, you're in high school and you think that you're super busy and then you get to college and you think, oh, I thought I was busy then. And then you get married and then you think, oh, I was busy then. And you have your first kid and you think, oh, I'm, I thought I was busy then. And then you have two kids, three kids, whatever. And at a certain point you need to stop and you think, you know what? I'm just a bottomless pit of selfish, entitled stupidity. And I just mm -hmm. need to get over myself. And pastors, we're so much like this. Um, I remember several times being in Max's, Pastor Carell's office. And this would have been 10 years plus ago. And Max looking at me and saying, Tim, we're just going to have to carry around cards in our pocket and write down our appointments and just never stop giving ourselves to people. That's what our flock needs. And we need to do that. And then also talking all the time about as we get older, continuing to have sap and listen, there's none of us that, none of us that aren't selfish pigs. Mm -hmm. Actually, there are a lot of people in the church that aren't selfish pigs, but I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm not, not a selfish pig. And all of us have to be, call each other out of our selfish pighood. And I'm not ashamed of us doing that with singles because I know that the minute anybody, man or woman who is single, repents of parading their wounds and gives themselves to others, they're going to be so much less vulnerable to drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, bitterness. And they're going to be so much more marketable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is the way that it, that it works. Like if somebody who's single, the people that are attractive are the people that aren't victims. They're not selfish. They recognize they're in a, a time of life where they have more freedom. And instead of using their freedom selfishly, they use it to serve others. 
they make themselves valuable to the church and to the people around them. They take responsibility wherever they can. And those people just don't tend to stay single long. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I'm married to a beautiful woman, okay? But I mean, what makes beauty? You know, how many times I've told single people who had some particularity about their bodies, their appearance, their hair, whatever, you know, sometimes it's as pedestrian a thing as pimples. It's like, actually, you know something? Beautiful people are beautiful regardless of whether they're short, tall, fat, thin, pimples, no pimples, blonde, brunette. And beauty is in the bite of the beholder, and you just listed the things that the beholder is looking for. You know, and yeah. it's just so obvious. Now, I know it's easier for me to see because I'm not fixated on getting a wife. And I, so I have sympathy for people who are single and think that I'm blowing smoke. But can we all just admit to each other that beauty actually is not a function of weight, of hair color, of makeup? You know, you watch people who come together, a man and a woman, they come together. Tim says, well, it's, it's not about how you look. It's about your beauty. <laughs> and he's right. But that can't be seen in an environment where it can't be fostered and encouraged and nourished and grow. And so all you have in many places where you would expect people to find someone to marry, for instance, in, in what you'd want to do is, as Christians, you'd want to find them in a Christian community. But all you have is something that's so superficial and so lacking any helps for people to see the real beauty. I don't know, am I making sense of well, what yeah, I'm trying no, to look, say? Well, yeah, no, look, my wife turned my head on a mission trip to Juarez, Mexico, where we were building houses. What, what I noticed was a girl that worked all everybody around men and boys included under the table. And she's there to serve, and so she served, and she never stopped. And was that sexy to you? E very much so. Why? I mean, that's counterintuitive. Hmm. I don't know how to how, put it into words. How it's, many secretaries has, has our church had through the years? Uh, 18 in its 25-year existence? 18 secretaries, and One how man. many of them have ever come <laughs> to the position of being the secretary married? They're, the men have watched these women serving the church. And, and it, is, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And I don't want to say that's sexy because then people would think that the pastors are perverted. But in terms of what turns a man on to a woman and makes him want to be one with her the rest of his life, if that's what we mean by sexy, what the world means is romantic, it is very romantic to have a woman serve well, it's a way for for their character to be displayed, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there she is, and people can observe her character. We have the same thing happen with, I. it's funny, we have the same thing happen with young ladies who, we have a crew of young ladies who make coffee for the church. Mm -hmm. And as you watch them serve the church making coffee, it's a way for their character to be, to, mm -hmm. to be displayed. I had never paid much attention to Amanda because she was, well, one she was young, but she was also modest, quiet. She didn't draw attention to herself. Mm -hmm. But then you put her in a context like that, and then you realize, whoa, wait a minute. I remember being That's a... pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a lot going on. And Well, that being interpreted, how do you interpret? That's pretty hot. I, what I, is I, that supposed to mean? I think it means it was pretty hot. Yeah, 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 but come on. Why? 
I remember, I mean, my wife hit the church like a comet and was... <laughs> I would say something beyond a comet. What would we say? Uh, what's larger than a comet? I don't know. A falling what is it? star. That's not a moon. No, that's no what moon. Is it, what is it that threatens to hit the the earth and destroy it? What are they it's called? A meteor. A meteor? Yeah, I would say not even a meteor. There's a... Asteroids. A, an asteroid. Yeah. She... Excuse me. She hit... My dining room table has an asteroid. You know. Well, look, for context, yeah, she came here for like an eight-week or ten-week summer program at IU while she was investigating coming here for grad school. Religious studies in religious studies, and in the space of like the eight weeks that she was here, everybody knew who Meredith was. Meredith knew who everybody was. She knew who all the kids were, and she and was she single. Babysit. She babysat for like half the families in the church in that time period, mm. and she was just from the from the minute she got here, she was going to find her church community, and she was going to plug herself in, and she was going to serve like she lived here and belonged here until it was time for her to go. It was, and that was sexy because I mean it didn't hurt anything that she had legs that went all the way to the ground, but I think it was uh, feminine. Well, it was feminine, but it was like. I have a purpose in life. I have to serve the church. I have to do things. I want a helpmate. I want somebody that can help me. And here's somebody who's making herself a helper to the whole church. That's that's a that's pretty good salesmanship. Like I want that. Well, that's what I was trying to ask Jake when he said this comment about Amanda. Why? What was the word you said again? Hot. Hot. Yeah. Why that made Amanda such so hot to you? Right. Well, it's because what suddenly. You saw her legs. Suddenly, you saw her form. No, suddenly. Well, well, but but you might. It may be okay. Listen, give me that thought back in a second. But listen, we must not deny that scriptures positively speaks of the shape and the appearance of women. This whole Paige Patterson thing, where everybody had a hissy fit because he made a comment about the appearance of somebody. Scripture does this, and so we can't act as if we're ethereal spirits right. who are disconnected from beautiful women and from beautiful bodies. The female body is beautiful, and certain women are beautiful. Nevertheless, pick it up again, Max. Well, yeah, the point of it is what connected with Jake when he saw Amanda being godly. Yeah, yeah. What connected with him that he actually said attraction is hot. That's hot. Attraction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's partially because he was looking for the right thing, but it's also that God designed in him, I believe God designed in men, a desire for what Nathan was just talking about. Mm -hmm. What did you say, Nathan? I wanted somebody who was going to be a helper. I don't want somebody who's going to be a high-maintenance wife. I don't want somebody who's going to be constantly calling me to service her, service her, bring her what she needs, provide, 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 in a sense that she's just, everything is revolving around her. And the Bible, the Bible actually condemns that, and it doesn't just condemn the selfishness, but it actually condemns wives who treat their husbands that way. And for 10 points, where? Proverbs. In the cattle field, the cows of Bashan. The cows of Bashan. Women who sit in their chairs and say to their husbands, bring me drink. (laughs) That I may drink. That I may drink. 
And it's a byword in the prophets for decadence that husbands are so weak that they're toadies to their wives and bringing them something to drink. Now, listen, we're not saying that a husband shouldn't take his wife a drink. We're not saying a husband shouldn't be solicitous to his wife. But is it possible in our androgynous, effeminate, decadent day that maybe in the church today, somebody needs to hear Amos speaking about the inappropriateness of that kind of a relationship, you know? In other words, if you're listening to this and you're just having a hissy fit that Pastor Carell actually talked about women being cows, you know, it's interesting. The other day I was listening, I was in the woodwork and I actually heard wherever I was, I don't remember where I was, but I actually heard some women talking and referring to another woman as a cow. It is not a complimentary. They <laughs> didn't, didn't think they liked that one. It's not complimentary. And God inspires Amos to shame these women for that appropriate thing. And so it's not just that it's hot for a man to see a woman who is not a Calabashian, but it's also that a woman who is a Calabashian should be ashamed of herself. And if we don't say this, we're not scriptural. Well, and think about it for a minute. If you were there and you were viewing the women that the prophet was speaking of, that the Holy Spirit was condemning, what would she look like? I mean, might one of the cows of Bashan, just one of them, have been some glorious beauty beauty with, mm -hmm. you know, with just, who knows? It's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the reality is she may have been an incredibly beautiful mm -hmm. woman. In appearance, but awfully ugly. Mm -hmm. What I find reality. fascinating is that our culture is twisted, is so twisted, and it's so much in me that I observe myself, and it's difficult for me talking to you men on a podcast that will go out to, by and large, conservative Christians mm -hmm. to just say, oh, I wanted to help me. Like, I said it, but I, I cringed, you know? And... Oh, you just wanted somebody to I just serve you, you know, and serve I your just, needs. Uh, wanted to, it's all about you. Uh, you me, wanted you know? to sit in the chair and have her bring you drink. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think people think in our world today. They just think, yeah. okay, it's the man's world, and so the man sits in the chair and says, "Bring me drink." Listen, well, all four of us have good marriages. We have very good marriages, and I don't say that to brag or to be obnoxious at all. And it's fascinating. I'm sitting here listening to Jake. It's exactly how I fell for Mary Lee. Exactly. I had this crush on this, uh, I don't know what word to use, because there was a friend of Mary Lee's who was, uh, mm, she was a kind of high school woman, girl, who a high school guy like Tim Bailey would have been superficially attracted to and wanting to get her attention. All right. We all... Yep. We all know what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. And for some reason, having to do with my appearance, my being a jerk, my pride, who knows what all it could have been, she didn't give me the time of day. And I was on the bus on a retreat. We went on mission trips. And this was a retreat, though. And all of a sudden, I noticed this unaffected, cheerful, can-do girl next to her who was her friend. And I mean, from the moment I saw Mary Lee, I had no interest in any other woman. None. I immediately decided I wanted to marry her. Because why? Because she was completely unaware of herself. You know? She was unaffected. 
And sure enough, she worked like a dog. She made dresses for herself. I tell her, even now, the thing that makes me happiest about her is when she sews with her grandchildren. Her sewing is just so delightful to me. It's hot, mm -hmm. right? And I'll bet the same thing is true. You, you, you just were talking about Meredith giving herself to babysitting and yeah. all these different things in the church. How do you separate sexual attraction from character? Well, I think there's a negative corollary to this, and I can remember instances of girls who were lazy, who didn't give themselves to the church, who didn't have character. And they might have been very attractive physically, but those kinds mm -hmm. of things actually can be and have been in my life instant turnoffs. You know, just like, oh, well, rejected, not going for that. So if I were listening to this and I were single, I would think, okay, so we had a Valentine's episode on singleness and <laughs> would you believe it? The whole thing turned into oh. one long counseling session on if I want to be married, how I can get married right. and how and I it can turns be out attractive. We all fell in love at first sight. So <laughs> all you have to do yeah. is do that. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and now we're very happy. I'm glad we solved that problem. Well, okay, singles. I guess what what are the moral what the moral of the story so far is give yourself to the church and work hard and make yeah, yourself Yeah, I mean what Amanda likes to say to people is make absolutely everybody around you sad to see you married. Hmm. That's fascinating. And what she means is you make yourself so valuable in service to the church that everybody the instant you are going to get married, starts to calculate the the loss. Oh, now she just has to gets to serve this guy instead of yeah. absolutely everybody. <laughs> yeah, which is another way to say is if we if we knew that God had certain people who He intended for singleness, and we knew who they were, and we we could see it when we saw them, when we met them. What would we tell them to do? How would we ask them to behave? How would we tell them to be beautiful? How would we tell them to be godly? Would we say anything differently? Would you say anything differently if you knew for a fact that somebody ought not to be married in terms of their behavior and how they comported themselves? I, Mary Lee and I just had a dear friend of ours visit who has spent her life single. She's struggled with weight her whole life. I met her first when we were at Northern Illinois University. We were students there. And, and it was interesting. She visited us recently. And she happened to have her birthday on Sunday. And we were eating together. And she's got to be in her late 60s now. She spent her life as a school teacher. I was just thinking about how feminine she is. How feminine she is. Because femininity is uh, barely a trace element left in the Western world. And I was just meditating on the fact that here is a single woman who has spent her life working with special needs kids, working in a service position. She is uh, very much a woman who knows music, beautiful voice. She knows musicals. She knows movies. She knows literature. And she could have spent her life becoming a bitter woman, but she didn't. And she's one of the reasons you know she's feminine is she's vulnerable to being hurt and to you being insensitive to her, you know? And that's such a gift. And do you understand why I mean that some people demand that every curb be lowered so that their wheelchair doesn't have to go over a bump? Are you with me? And this this dear friend of ours, she's not like that. She doesn't require that everybody do obeisance to her singlehood. I wonder if we asked her whether she was called to singleness, I think she'd just laugh 
And she'd say, well, I guess so. In other words, even her thought about her singleness, I don't think is something that, that it's a grief observed. I think it's just a fact of her existence. You know, I want to say that there are single people who are called to singleness, okay? And there's just a delightful presence in your home, with your family, with the church, and they end up being members of your extended family. And honestly, even though if you stopped and thought for a second, they're single. Yeah, yeah, they're single. But you don't think of them in terms of, he's single, she's single. What you think of them is being uncles, as being brothers. You know, my, my cousin, John Dewalt, he was single. He was an attorney in the Supreme Court. Uh, he ran the Supreme Court of the state of Pennsylvania. He was godfather of our daughter, Michael. And, you know, we didn't think of John as being single. Every chance he got, he came out and visited. He'd take Michael out for dinner. He'd get her to memorize scripture. People weren't walking around on eggshells because John was single. And in his case, he had failed at a marriage very quickly. And for him, that was it. And John was single, but John poured his attention and work and love. Everything he could, he poured into Michael. He was a better father to Michael than I was. And I want to say that in my life, I have seen a lot of people who, yeah, they were single, but they weren't single at all. They had families, they had children, they had brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, uh, nephews and nieces, and they just poured themselves. I think of one woman named Gertrude in Madison when Mary Lee and I were first married. And Gertrude was an older single woman, German. And she still had a thick German accent, and she lived with Peter and B. Northrop. And Peter was the assistant to the president at InterVarsity. And she lived, they, were, they lived, they had a nice house in Shorewood Hills. They had independent wealth, and so Peter gave himself to InterVarsity every year for a dollar pay. And he just served the presidents. He was a good man. His wife was godly. They had children. And Gertrude lived with them. And she kept house. She loved them everywhere they went. She was there. She took care of the children. And you didn't think of Gertrude as being single. You thought of her as being like with Peter and B. Northrup and with the children. And, and she served, you know, and I can think of any number of people. I'm writing a series right now on Enoch. When I knew Enoch, he was single. And Enoch just gave himself to his church, to me, to the, to the people that we work for. I want to say one other thing about singleness. You know you're not single if you burn. You have not been called a single if you burn. That's something we have to nail here. Yeah, when, when you first posed the question, am I called to singleness? Mm-hmm. My mind went a very different direction than the direction we, we launched out in, which was all of the super spiritual people who think that they're, 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 they're very proud people who think they're called to some kind of special higher life, you know? Mm-hmm this kind of ethereal mystical thing. And what's almost always inevitably true about those people is that actually they burn and with lust, with lust. And part of what they're trying to do is escape it by trying to live a, some kind of spiritual hair on fire kind of life. It just blows up on them right. all the time. Always ends badly. Always ends badly. I was single into my thirties and people would sometimes ask, do you think you're called to singleness? And my answer at a certain point became, Yes, because I am today. Hmm. So I guess I'm called to singleness, hmm. but it's not some big macro spiritual 
calling. thing, a, a calling, quote unquote, you know, something that God sent down on a, a scroll. A special dignified station in life. No, it's just like, are you called to single? Well, I guess you're single. So yeah, you are right now. But that didn't really have anything to do with my future, with my plans, with my aspirations, with any, it was just a way of saying it's a stupid question, I guess. And I think for most people, it probably is a stupid question. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a, a fairly recent marriage in our church of a couple that both were in their, what, late 30s, single? Yeah, this woman had gone to Wheaton and done a typical thing for Wheaton women, which was that she went off and gave herself to missions uh, in another part of the world, poured herself into it, came from godly father and mother. Dad's a pastor, and I had never met them, even though Mary Lee and I are from Wheaton. We, had, we didn't know her. She didn't know us, but she began to read some of the Warhorn material. And one day, she sent me an email, and she said, uh, hi, you don't know me, but it did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, probably a couple thousand words. In that email, what she said was that she decided that she was not going to stay overseas doing missions work because... Now, remember earlier when you said it makes you uncomfortable to, to even talk about wanting a helpmate. You remember that? She said she decided she wasn't going to stay over there because she realized that she wanted to be married and to have children. And I remember reading this email, and she told me that she'd graduated from Wheaton. And I thought, can it be? I mean, can it really be that a smart Wheaton you know, grad in missions work, single in her late 30s, is writing some dude and saying, I decided to leave the mission field and to come back to the United States because I decided I wanted to be married and have children. Now, maybe people listening don't understand how radical this is for a Wheaton graduate who's a woman and bright to do, but it is radical because that's the one thing that women who graduate from Christian colleges today are never to do, which is to say that they've decided that they're no longer going to solve the AIDS problem in Africa because they've decided they want to come back to the U.S., find a husband, get married, and have children, okay? Now, I, I tell about this because she and the man she ended up married were confirmed singles in their late 30s. It's interesting what my wife says, because, you know, you know single people who are just adamant that they're not looking for a husband and they're not looking for a wife. They're content. I tell you, they're content, right? And Mary Lee says about some of them, you know, here's an idea. Find a church where there are some marriageable women or marriageable men. Here's an idea. Don't live out in the bush in Africa all by yourself with nobody who has an education that you can talk to, even in English, you know, if you want to get married and you think, you know, in other words, Mary Lee's saying there should be some connection between what you believe God's calling is for you in your life and the actions you take and the places you live. You should set yourself in, what's the word, in, in the way of possibilities, okay? And it actually is not humiliating to do that. Other people watching you do that think you have a lot of class. I mention that so that I can finish the story. You guys know it, but people listening don't. So I wrote her back and I said, you know, I'll respond to the rest of this long email later. But right now, I want to know, would you be interested in meeting a man 
that I think might be good for you. Because immediately, you know who I was thinking about. You guys know him quite well. And do you know what, I mean, you do know what she wrote back, but those of you listening, you don't know what she wrote back, but what she wrote back brought tears to my eyes because I have a daughter-in-law who actually did graduate from Wheaton and it is bright. And I know Wheaton women. And you know, she wrote me back and she said very simply, she said, I can't think of anything you could do for me that would be more kind. And so if we're going to talk about singleness, let's talk about modesty and humility and being able to admit that you want to be married and be a mother. Can that be okay in the church today? Can that be okay of graduates of Christian colleges? Can that be okay for high school girls who are going to Christian schools? Well, if you go to a public school and you're in a class where they're dealing with your future and the the, uh, guidance counselor is there and she's going to pass out some superficially designed aptitude tests where you end up having 20 possibilities of things that you could be as categories, and you're a young woman in that situation, there isn't any way for you to end up with your best life now being a wife and a mother because the test doesn't have any place for it. There isn't any ending that leads to that. In fact, that's that's evil. That's uh, Stone Age. That's just completely unacceptable. Neanderthal, this is no good, right? So then you think, well, in the Christian schools, they'll have that. And the fact is they might not have a test that they bring that shows aptitude to all, to all those things, but neither do they have any kind of track or discussion generally of young women in the Christian school being any different than the young men in the Christian school for the expectation that they're going to, this is going to be their achievement and it's all on their way to getting their to getting into the good college and it's all on their way to getting into a good graduate school and it's all on their way to getting this kind of job because the schools are just pushing and pushing and pushing. All the graduates they have to go to college make them look better, right? Every way that they can improve makes them look better. Every way that they that they test on numbers of students doing this and this and this makes them look better. But and Christian colleges, it's them getting Christian to grad colleges, school, same becoming thing. doctors, lawyers. At what point does a woman get the opportunity to consider for a moment the fact that God made her a woman and that is that's singular, that is uh, a reality that connects to the giving of life, that connects to marriage, that connects to a man, that connects to being a helpmeet, that connects to being vulnerable, that it connects to being nurturing, that connects to so many aspects of womanhood that our culture just wants to shut down, shut down, shut down, shut down, shut down. And so does the church. <laughs> As a matter so of fact, the church often does it more intensely. Just wants to shut it the church completely. so much wants the world's approval, and so the church is especially careful to approve of the world where the world is contrary to Scripture. And so the church is vehement about her daughters not being barefoot and pregnant. How many of our wives have gone to their mothers to say, they're pregnant with their third child and have gotten a rousing hurrah. <laughs> how, many of, how many of our daughters have gone to their parents and said, you know, I'm, I can't do this job and 
take care of my children. I want to take care of my children. And not had some kind of long speech about, well, you know, if you do this, then you're going to have this and this and this. And wouldn't it be better if they were in child care somewhere so that and you if could your keep husband turns out in track. fact to be a scoundrel in a yeah. few years and leaves you and commits adultery and you've given up your job for him and to raise his children you know i feel like Don't this you know whole jobs to have daycares <laughs> i feel like this whole episode on singleness and valentines is this about valentines yeah it's our valentines it's all been about women and i feel like there should be a whole one about men well let's talk about the men First question I want to ask is, let's say your, uh, what's the best way to ask this? Is singleness a problem to be solved? Am I doing something wrong if I am not striving towards finding a woman to marry if I am a dude? Well, it, it, one, th- one thing that depends upon, and that is if you are being a good and godly man. So for, for instance, if if the posture of all single women should be that they're godly single women, the posture of all single men should be that they're godly single men. So, for instance, a man who is ungodly is a man who's not taking responsibility. He may be a Peter Pan. He may be whatever it is. As Tim was talking earlier about people being in people's homes, the woman you talked about that lived with the family and she was just part of the family, and the reason why that worked so well is because she actually fulfilled something of her call as a woman Incredibly. in that place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there are lots of single men who do nothing to fulfill their call as a man, as single men. And so maybe, well, I guess what I'm saying, Nathan, is before that question backing up, you said, should they seek to do things to be married? Mm-hmm. Before that, are examining themselves and to see if they are actually seeking to do things to make them godly and therefore worth marrying. Mm-hmm. Because that's what you see in a lot of men today is you see a lot of men who are, they don't want to take responsibility for anything. What's the equivalent of a man in the situation where Tim bring, brings up this woman who is demonstrating her femininity by serving in this family as a single? What's 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 the same? What are the similar characteristics in a man who would demonstrate his his godliness and his masculinity in a state of being single? Well, you've avoided the word responsibility. Could you talk about that a little bit? If you watch men who are in a perpetual state of not growing up, they are men who will not bear any weight, who will not take responsibility for what's in front of them. You don't have to be married and have children to show and demonstrate your willingness to take responsibility. There are things that you should be taking responsibility for all the time. And lots of men are just out having fun. Yeah, so there's, Tim was talking earlier about, I mean, he didn't say it this way, but how a lot of single women are still mothers. They're mothers in the church. Mm-hmm. They're mothers. You can't help it. Yeah, it's just who they are. If they're taking responsibility and just being godly feminine women, they're just, they're being mothers in the church. Mm-hmm. And Mothers in Israel. Mothers in Israel. So there, there are basically two kinds of single men in the church. There, there are fathers who are taking responsibility for themselves and for other people and are actively engaged in serving and taking responsibility. And then there are the people who just need to be kicked in the pants and told, grow up, take responsibility for yourself and other people, get, get a job, get married. Well, your whole life is a conspiracy to avoid responsibility. So man up. And you know, I'd almost say take off the marriage. 
It's immaterial. Mm-hmm. Take responsibility. Get up off your butt and serve other people and take responsibility for them. And the reason I want to cut off that get married thing is I think that people who are single listening to this are going to think, yeah, there it goes again. You know, I don't have a life until I get married. And the fact is, we've I just talked about my cousin. There are a lot of men that have been in our church that have been wonderful mm-hmm. single, right? True. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a kind, I mean, I think, okay, I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, the single person saying, there, there they go again. On the other hand, there's a kind of man who specifically wants to avoid the responsibility of having a family, of having a wife and children to care for. And maybe he's somebody who's been harmed, you know, mm-hmm. who's somebody who's very fearful and insecure. He comes from a, a broken home or whatever. There is a kind of man that you do want to go to and say, hey, grow up, get married. Because you know that when you say that to them, what's going to hit them is the force of real responsibility mm-hmm. and real need to grow up and mature mm-hmm. to deal with their sin, to deal with their fears, to deal with their insecurities. But yeah, our church has always been full of godly single men who are growing in that, are, are growing in that, are growing and who are a gift, a gift to the church. And some of them, I mean, I, you know, I probably all know who I'm thinking of, but some of them. They go for years single, and you keep seeing women that would be wonderful for them, and God doesn't put them together, and it's painful to the man, and he has proven his responsibility. He has proven that he loves the Lord. He's proven himself in in every way. I'd say that about this couple we were talking about earlier in the late 30s. You know, there were certain idiosyncrasies, I'm sure, of both of them, but on the other hand, I think we, I know I would have easily married them to any of my children. In other words, I loved them. I thought the world of them. They were in their thirties. God sometimes does that with us. Well, and we've talked about how men look at women and see their godliness and are attracted to it. How do women look at men and see their godliness? Yes, okay, so you have women and they think of a man and I, this guy's a specimen. You know, he's a specimen. And I don't know what they think, you know, what they think a specimen is today. It's funny, I tell my wife, I said, you know, what did he, what did she ever see in him? And my wife says, oh, he's handsome. And I'm thinking, oh my, what did she ever see in me? <laughs> if that's how she sees men. <laughs> And I think the reality is that what my wife sees is not what I see. You know what I tell single men? And I haven't done this recently, but I did it for years. I tell them, if you want to be married, pay attention to the children of this church. I think every woman is looking for a father for her children. I think that's what they find attractive. A man who will stand firmly when danger, who is tender with the weak. He's demonstrated that he's capable of providing and protecting both. Yeah, but it can't just be that he has money because he anticipated the fact that he'd want to get married, so he bought a house, and he's 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 made the house nice, and he has a good-looking no. pickup truck. Oh, da, 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 da. No, he's just the kind of man that can handle himself in this world. And who has emotional responsibility for others, not just Yeah, financial. that provision is not just financial. The provision yeah, is emotional yeah. provision. It's being there for people. Mm. And the backbone to protect. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I just saw this story about some guy, this coyote attacked his kid. And he choked <laughs> it to death. He choked it to death. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. yeah. 
And there's this picture of this baseball game where the bat breaks and the bat is flying. Oh, I love that picture. And and the men's, the men's arms yeah. are like this and the woman is behind going like this. And you don't think less of the woman and you think, this is right, men. And the men save the boy who's oblivious to the fact he's just about to get hit by a- Flying baseball bat. 90 yeah, the mile woman an hour is, chunk is, of wood. is protecting herself and yeah. the man is protecting the boy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think from the picture, isn't it evident that the man doesn't even know the boy? I mean, I think, isn't he well, like one of them might have been his dad, but there were two men, if I remember correctly, there were two men in it. But, but isn't one like a row back or something? I, maybe I don't know. Sometimes when you see that sort of thing, what's actually clear is that the man's not even had a thought. Hmm. Yeah. Don't you love that? He he just reaches out and catches yeah. the bat because yeah. that's what he's supposed. That's who to he do. is. That's yeah. what he does. That's, yeah. yeah. Hmm. It's Peggy Noonan says, yeah, Peggy Noonan's talking about the firemen after 9-11 yeah. and how, how admirable they were. If you haven't read the essay and you want to read something to your wife that will make you almost cry and maybe cry, even if you're crusty, look online for Peggy Noonan's thing, Welcome Back John Wayne or Welcome Back, what's he called? Duke. And it's an essay after 9-11 about the glory of the firemen. And she refers to them as men who punch the shark. And you will love the essay. So that's, I hope you won't cut that because- I'll link to it in the show notes. (laughs) I had a hard time finding it uh, not too long ago. Probably I looked it up on a 9-11 recently. Uh, She's one of my heroes. She was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. If you ever want to read a wonderful book, read her book about how much she loved President Reagan. It's it's a sweet thing. Hmm. It strikes me that we have not discussed the sins that attend singleness. Well, the immediate destructive sins to people who are single are sins that are false in their sexually false, their their false intimacy. And so giving yourself to... Harry Schomburg's book of of the name is something you should read. Yeah. Giving yourself to pornography, giving yourself to romance novels where all of your emotions are excited to what's being written in the book creates a false world that will end up being a, so first of all, it's an offense to God, violation of his law, and should not be. And secondly, it will destroy in you that and, and corrupt in you that which is good and what God intended, so that if God later gives you a spouse, a husband or a wife, those corruptions you'll carry into your marriage and it'll be destructive in your marriage. Yeah, you'll come home from your honeymoon. It will have been a disaster. And you'll go into your pastors and say to them that you've pleasured yourself for so long that you were unable to be pleasured by your wife or your husband. And so if the immorality of the action does not warn you enough, hear what we're saying, that when a narcissist, and narcissists can be both men and women, when they give themselves to pleasuring themselves on a very foundational level of human sexuality. They are harming their ability to be married and to be mutual in intimacy because they find it much easier just to be by themselves. You know, I think I gave myself to false intimacy, not in a sexual sense, but just in a, I will watch movies, I will read novels, mm-hmm. I will. my friends will be fake people. And I remember at the workplace that I was in at the time, it was like everybody had their fake friends. We'd be talking about, you know, the characters on The Sopranos or whatever the show was mm-hmm. at the time. And it was like we were gossiping about actual people. And we were mm-hmm. offended that such and such had slept on who and who. And I like TV. I like movies. But 
I think there's a kind of person that just uses that as a substitute for actually having any kind of emotional depth with anyone else, not just romantically or erotically, but just more generally. Yeah, I think one of the dangers, the sins that tempt single people and that you tend to be a little more disciplined in by your life as a married person, as a mother and a father, grandparents, is not seeing and feeling the weight of human existence, medicating yourself with entertainment, with alcohol, with drugs, with riding roller coasters and traveling to theme parks, with just a whole host of things that can, as I say, medicate you so that you're not aware that you have no gravitas, no weight, no reality. That you are Dylan's rolling stone with no direction known, and therefore you really don't exist, you know? Does that make sense? You know, I'm not sure this will relate well to this, but one of my favorite children's short stories altogether is by George MacDonald, and it's called The Light Princess. And the whole thing is built on this idea that the princess is born, she's cursed by a hateful aunt who's a witch. And so she loses her gravity. But it's not just that she she floats in the air. She loses her gravity, her concern for anything. She can't she can't identify with anyone's sorrow or anyone's pain. Hmm. And it's a fascinating fascinating story because in the end that's how she's cured. Somebody dies for her. Sorry, this is a, a spoiler. spoiler. Spoiler alert for the Somebody light dies for her and she cries. And suddenly She's pulled to earth in every way, and she has gravity. She has connection. Hmm. And we think about how our world is this way today. We all live without any any gravity at all. Hmm. We're just hmm. floating above the earth, and nobody has any real concern. It's It connects to all the ways that suffering is just being removed from hmm. our, our hmm. sight hmm. all the time. Right? And singleness is suffering. It is, yeah. And so we, re- we, we remove all suffering from our sight, and then God calls on us, and one of the things he calls for us to do is, is to be true and to see things the way we ought to see them. In fact, the scripture actually says we are blind, and then he gives us sight. And we are blind, and so he gives us the ability to see the world as it actually is. We see who he is, we see who we are, and suddenly we are calibrated we have gravity. We're pulled to the earth and we're, and we're brought to the place where we can really understand and then deal with it. Well, if you think about the sins that attend, and of course, all of us, of course, but since we're talking about single people, the sins that attend single people, the reality of what Tim is saying is that they have to see what they see hmm. and start engaging with it hmm. as if it's their responsibility to engage with it, which is all that we've been talking about in young men being godly and young women being godly is that they see what they see, and then they do appropriately to the situation what a young man or a young woman should do. Be helpful. Mm-hmm. Useful. And bear fruit for God. Mm-hmm. It pleases Jesus for a 38-year-old woman who may be very heavy to babysit for a young mother who's shy, and not to do it because she's asked, but to do it because if she were that young mother, she would want herself to go and to babysit the children so they can go away for a weekend, go out for an evening, so she can go have coffee with another young mother. I want to address something that we should not leave out, and that is that the Reformation 
One of the most important parts of it that people don't realize is that it was a restoration of the dignity and glory of marriage and family life. And there's a wonderful book on this called uh, When Fathers Ruled by Stephen Osmond, a professor of history at Harvard. And in there, he shows that the medieval period had led to a cataclysmic loss of dignity and respect for marriage and family life because the religious, you know, the monks, the nuns, the, the priests, in a similar way to what goes on in Scripture where you see the sinners referred to in the gospel. Well, the sinners were people who lived uh, the common life and therefore were thought to be sinners because they couldn't observe the dietary laws. They couldn't. Well, in the Middle Ages, the same thing developed so that the people in monasteries and convents and the, the priests and all the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church were the ones that were thought to be spiritual. And then there were the normal people who were sinners who got married and had children, okay? And so the Reformation flipped this on its head. And all of a sudden, catechizing your children, being married to a woman who disciplined you as Katie von Bure disciplined Luther, marriage and family life began to be honored. Having children began to be seen as obedience to God who said, be fruitful and multiply, okay? And so what I want to say is we're in the process of losing everything that was good about the Reformation, especially in the Reformed Church today. The Reformed Church is turning its back even when it does affirm a doctrine which was recovered at the Reformation, it does it in such a way that it perverts it. And a classic example of that is people that realize, oh, we're supposed to have children. And so they say, okay, our children, and then they turn them into idols. I won't go off on that because I've talked about it before. It's a great danger in the church that family life is idolatry in many conservative Reformed churches. That's not what I'm talking about. But when you do, and there's a great debate going on right now within the papacy as to whether or not priests should be married. And Francis Pope is sympathetic to, uh, you know, the, the, the jungle peoples of Brazil having priests because they're, in, they're so rare that he wants them to be able to be married. So there's a great debate going on right now. And the, the problem is that when you do not have a wife and you claim that this is a calling from God, whether it's because you're a priest and your hierarchy tells you you may not be married and be a priest, whatever it is, whether it's because you're an evangelical campus crusade, pious person who this romantic notion of what it is to be a Christian and how to be pious and that we shouldn't be interested in women and we won't date them and all this other stuff. If you find, you are asking about sins and singleness, if you find that all your good intentions, much like the Middle Ages with all the religious that your good intentions are producing the same immorality that they produced at the time of the Reformation that caused the Reformers to repent of a celibate priesthood, of the glorification of singleness, all of that. If you today are committing sexual sins while you're claiming that you have a special calling from God to be particularly holy and single, go read Reformation history and recover the beauty and glory of marriage and family life, of catechizing children, of Luther saying that God looks down and smiles when a, when a young father changes his child's dirty diaper. Okay, let's not lie to each other about who we actually are, whether we're single or married. You can have married men who are unbelievably selfish pigs 
You can have single men who are unbelievably godly fathers and who husband the church, but you can also have single men who are debauched and still at the same time try to claim that they're the religious, okay? We better have some honesty in the church. And if you're not honest with yourself, I hope that you have a church that's good enough that you, that there are other people in the church that will be honest with you. I was just thinking the way that I learned to be honest about the sins that attended my singleness was my mom came over to my apartment one day when I was in my mid-20s, and it was just a pigsty. There was like stuff all, you know, jacket on the floor, wrappers by the trash can, sink full of dirty dishes. I mean, it was bad. Books on the ground surrounding my unmade bed. And she just said, very simply, you know this is sin, right? I said, what What do you mean? God doesn't care if my house is a mess. And she said, no, this is dissipation. And she actually used the yeah, word. She, 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 she used the word. <laughs> this is dissipation. This is dissipation. She's saying it. And I said, what's dissipation? And she said, this. You're not taking responsibility for yourself. You're not taking responsibility for anybody else. You need to pick up your room. Start there because... I can tell an awful lot, and any, any wise person can tell an awful lot about the state of your soul from looking at these dirty dishes uh, that you don't care uh, about. Uh, uh, uh. And it took years for that to really sink in, I think, but she was right. Does anybody have anything else, anything else they want to say about Well, I want us to say very clearly to people who are brothers and sisters in Christ listening who are very, very much hurting because God has not provided them a husband or wife. And I want to say to them that as pastors that we have watched through the years, and God can be trusted with our suffering. Mm. Don't despair. Your life has meaning because you belong to God, and he's a good father. And he cares for each of us tenderly. Don't, don't look at other people. Look at how God cares for you. And in his time and in his way, he makes everything beautiful. And you don't want to waste your life moaning about what you don't have so that you miss what you have. So trust God with the condition of life that he has you in. Then Comes What was produced by Nathan Alberson and executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alberson as our All Fine Warhorn products. You can send your questions for us to tcw at warhornmedia.com. That's T as in Tango, C as in Charlie, W as in Whiskey at warhornmedia.com. 